0: Uh, Memories of Survival depicts Esther nisenthal krinitzs and I hope I said that right, Nizenthal, mm-hmm. yeah, Krenitz's remarkable journey of living through the Holocaust in Poland. At 15, she defied Nazi orders and separated from her family as they and other Jews from their Polish village reported to a nearby train station. Making their way, that is, her and her sister, uh, a 13-year-old sister, uh, made their way to a village where they were unknown. Uh, Esther and her younger sister survived the war by posing as Polish farm girls, which is very similar to uh, the end. uh, Have you ever read Wartime Lies by Lewis Begley?
1: No, I know of the book. but There's a
0: very similar, at the end, they pose as farmers. Um, Anyway, uh, but that was fiction. Um, They never saw their family again. At the end of the war, Esther and her sister traveled to a displaced persons camp in Germany, where she met and married Max Krenitz. In 1949, with their baby daughter Bernice, they immigrated to the United States, living first in Brooklyn, New York, and later in Frederick, Maryland. Yeah. Um, Unlike many Holocaust survivors, Esther always shared with her daughters her memories of life during the war. But when she turned 50, or when she was 50, she decided she wanted them to see her home and family. Esther went on to create a series of 36 exquisitely detailed works of fabric, collage, and embroidery. At once naive and infinitely complex, I didn't write the naive part, um, uh, these images reveal both the extreme horrors of war and, cherished, and the cherished family memories they shared before the war began. Told in Esther's own words, with commentary written by her daughter, Bernice Steinhardt, memories of survival is an unforgettable look back at a time that must never be forgotten. Bernice Steinhardt is the president of Art and Remembrance, a nonprofit arts and educational organization. In founding Art and Remembrance, Bernice and her sister, Helene or Helen McQuaid, Helene. Helene McQuaid, were inspired by their mother's stories and artwork. Recognizing the power of their mother's art, they created Art and Remembrance as a testament to their mother's legacy and a means to share her work with those of, with those of others who depicted their experiences as victims of war, oppression, and injustice. Since its founding in 2003, the organization has created a traveling exhibit of Esther Krenitz's art, which has traveled to close to two dozen museums in the US, produced an award-winning film, Through the Eye of the Needle, and published the book, Memories of Survival. I'm very excited, personally, to be hosting this event. Please join me in welcoming Bernice Steinhardt.
1: the laptop... Artwork, my artwork, is in the art and uh I guess they were very Oh, can you hear me or should I just use this? Let me step back here. Um yes, yeah, so they had seen the artwork, they loved it, it's incredibly beautiful and moving experience. So They were happy uh, to discover that I was here. I was happy to come, so uh, serendipitous all around. Anyway, it is really a great honor, actually, for me to be here and to share something of my mother's art and story with you. Um, You've kind of gotten the background of it. Sally, do you want to see okay, or do you want to stay with me? Okay, you're good. This is Solly. Um Here. Okay. <laughs> Solly, you going to stay with me while I tell the story of Great Grandma Esther? Okay. Okay. Um You know, I feel this is actually kind of appropriate to have, I mean, and wonderful to have my grandkids, a couple of my grandkids here. Because what my mother did, she did for her family. Um, She did it to remember the family that she had lost, and she did it really for me and my sister. She never intended that her work would be displayed um, in public. She just wanted my sister and me to see what her home and her family looked like. So she started uh, with a couple of pictures. This is the very first picture that she did, and its scale is really... Um, you can't really see how big it is. From, are you coming back to me, so Okay. Okay. Uh, this picture is actually about four feet by four feet, and this was the first one that she made. She just took a piece of fabric. She had never been trained as an artist. She didn't know how to draw. And so she was uh, somewhat reluctant at first to do it all on her own. She wanted my sister to draw the picture, to draw a picture of her house. But my sister said, Mom, I don't know what your house looked like. You have to do this yourself. So she got a piece of cheap fabric because she could sew anything. She had been trained as a Uh, as a dressmaker. When she was eight years old, she was apprenticed to the village dressmaker. So she just got this large piece of fabric and, um, and drew out her house and some of the other features, her neighbor's house, and then just filled it all in with stitches. And then when she was finished with this piece, she gave it to me, and then she made a companion piece for my mother. This is the view across, I mean, sorry, for my sister. Um, This is the view from across the road from her house. You can see the road there with the farmers coming in from the fields. Um, In this picture, my mother uh, pictures herself coming up the hill, And she's bearing a couple of buckets of water from the river. And at the house, her mother is there, her father, her older brother, her sister, Manya, the one she survived with, is waiting at the top of the hill. Her dog, the horse. This is the home that she wanted us to know about. companion piece which she made for my sister because she was very even-handed. She had to make one for me, I'm the older one, but she had to make one for my sister. And here she's, um, she and her brother are swimming in the river and their sisters are uh, on the banks with the animals, the ducks and chickens and geese. And it is the most beautiful pastoral scenes these were extremely uh, happy memories so she did these two and then she kind of set these memory pictures aside and then she went back to them (coughs) excuse me about 10 years later she returned to these memory pictures and this is her style changed she started doing fabric collage because it was too time consuming to do the, the um, cruel embroidery that she had done in the first two pictures. And by this point, she also knew that she was going to be telling her story. And she started adding stitched, these stitched captions. So she was actively telling her story, not just taking snapshots, but really creating a, a, almost a filmic, Um, presentation Bram asked if he could come up you're welcome to come here if you want okay Um, so here she is in this particular picture and these she did a few pictures of her life before the war and uh, most of the pictures she did were the story of her survival, and then a few of her life after the war. And this is one from before the war of a holiday called Shavuos, which is usually in June. Um, And she and her brother and sisters were on their way to their grandparents' house. And her brother had made her a pair of stilts. She used to call him the toy maker, and she was the toy tester. She was something of a tomboy, so she would... Uh, try out all of his creations. And uh, here she was in the caption, she describes how proud she was to be able to make it all the way to their grandparents' house without falling. And you'll see all of the pictures, to me, are incredibly beautiful, but this is one of the most beautiful. It has so much color and life to it. Um, All of the pictures have um, frames, fabric frames around them. And she used color as a way of setting the period of time so that all the pictures from before the war, all the pictures during the war, have black fabric frames around them. And the ones before and after the war um, have either blue or green. There's one that's white. Because she wanted clearly to distinguish the happy part of her life from the terrifying part of her life. And this is the only one though where she where she was so exuberant that she kept stitching um, these uh, sheaves of wheat into the border of the picture, not just in the fields as they're going through them. Um, she just love this motif and actually we used a motif very similar to this on the gravestone for her and my father I think it would have resonated with her this is now so those pictures were in the late 1930s in 1939 the war arrived The war arrived in September, right at the outset of the war. The war came to her village. And my mother had heard that there was a a few soldiers that were coming into the village. And so she and her friends ran down to her grandparents' house, uh, the same grandparents that they were going to see on Shavuos, and they stood there and watched as these soldiers rode up to her grandparents' house, which was at the entrance to the village. They rode up to their grandpa- her grandparents' house and pulled him off the steps of his house, and she watched as they cut off his beard. Because the beard was the sign of a Jew. Only Jewish men wore beards, so they knew immediately that this was a Jewish family and they cut off his beard. And this was the way the war began for my my mother. So the Germans occupied her village for three years, from 1939 to 1942. And during this time, uh, life grew progressively more difficult for the Jews. My mother could see that there were what was happening around her they were no longer able to uh, earn a livelihood. Her father was a a horse trader. He used to travel around the countryside buying and selling horses, and her mother raised uh, ducks and chickens and geese and would sell them at market. so all that came to a stop. And my mother and her sister, everybody had to figure out how to help the family Um, and my mother and her sister helped the family by working for other farmers. So they became farmhands. <coughs> and here my mother, and at this po- point, this was in 1941, the Jews were no longer allowed to own any any farm animals themselves. So here she and her sister were tending cows that belonged to other farmers. And um, it was a beautiful day in June, and my mother decided that they could take their cows to the good pasture near the Vistula River, this big river that was near their village. And when they got there to this uh, area, to to this pasture, they could see through the trees and bushes that they were next to this Camp, this slave labor camp called Yanishev. Before the war, this had been actually a prison camp. They used to bring prisoners there to rebuild this earthen dam that used to get washed out in the spring floods. And they would bring them there afterwards to uh, rebuild the dam. But now they were using the slave labor, just Jews, young uh, boys and Jewish men and my mother could see them through the trees. And here she watches as uh, one of the soldiers leads a boy who, was, who had become too exhausted to work anymore, and he's led into the forest and shot. So when, when my mother was making these pictures, uh, they lived about an hour, less than an hour away from us. And um, my son, Simon, the father of Bram and Sally, and our daughter and my husband, we would go to my parents' house every Sunday for dinner. And so I always saw what my mother was working on because she always had something that she was working on. <laughs> and she would show me where she was and... Uh, they were always, it was always amazing to me. But when she showed me this picture, I was literally awestruck. To me, this, this image captures the essence of war through the eyes of a child. On the one side of the picture is this beautiful, um, this b- scene of great beauty and of great and of life. Uh, the grass, and if if you see this, I guess in the book you can see every single blade of grass is a separate stitch. Um, so the tree, the these um, fruit-bearing trees and the flowers, so vividly green grass. And on the other side of these trees is this uh, scene of great brutality and terror. And they're only separated by this thin line of of, uh, bushes and trees. And so just her composition, the fact that she could capture the essence of war in such a direct and straightforward way was just, as I said, awesome to me. When I showed this picture, I've done a number of classroom presentations, and I showed this picture to a group of fourth graders. And I asked them what they thought of this picture. And one boy said that this picture showed him that there was a thin line between good and evil. Uh, Incredibly (laughs) insightful (coughs) and true. So... By 19, this is now October 15, 1942, all the Jews were ordered to leave their homes and report to a nearby train station in another city. And my mother refused to go. She, No one knew exactly what was going to happen to them, where they were being taken to, they just had to report to the train station. But having lived under three years of German occupation, they knew, my mother knew, that whatever it was was not going to be good. And so she had this idea that she, and, and she wanted to take Manya with her, she didn't want to go by herself, that she and Manya could go to work for Polish farmers, just as they had been doing. So they could go to some other village where no one knew that, or away from their home village, and find work there. And she begged her father to think of someone that, a friend of his that she could go to, a Polish man, who would take them in and give them work. And so he finally came up with the name of a friend of his, uh, Stefan. So once my mother had this name, she was determined they were going to go to Stefan's house. So here they're saying goodbye to their family this is the last time that they saw them. And everybody, my mother describes this scene, everybody was crying. Um, in the book, well, just a, an observation here. My mother did not create these pictures in the chronological order in which the story unfolded. She created them in what I call a psychological order, the pictures that she needed to uh, depict First were the earliest pictures. And this was one of the very first pictures that she did. So you can see it's kind of two-dimensional. It's on uh, just a single plane (laughs) because she hadn't learned perspective yet. Over the roughly 10-year period that she was working on on these uh, pieces, she learned so much. It was really remarkable. I don't, I didn't include it in the slides, but in the book, you can see that the next picture, which was the chronological picture, this was one of the first pictures she did. Um, The next picture in the sequence is of her, is also of leave-taking, but it was done about 10 years later. And the difference in composition and... um, uh, color choices and so on is is very striking she had clearly evolved in her artistic technique quite a lot but here they're saying goodbye to their family they had their baskets f- packed for work there with digging hose and um and they left their mother had paid a neighbor to take them to her Uh, to the other village of Dombrova where Stefan was but she abandoned them and my mother well she abandoned them my mother grew suspicious that she was going to turn them into the Germans because there was a bounty (coughs) so they left and they went to the road where all the Jews were on their way And here, they met met up with their cousin, Dina, who was walking with her baby. And Manya, her sister, Manya never wanted to go with my mother. She wanted to stay with the rest of the family. It was only because their mother told her, Manya, go with Esther, that she listened to her mother. And here, (coughs) when she saw Dina, she just kind of latched onto her because it was um, someone that she knew and loved and she thought she would be reunited with her, with her family. But when my mother realized that they were getting close to Krasnik, the train station, she, pulled, uh, Ma- she started to pull Manya off the road to go on their own to Dombrova. And Manya didn't want to go. She wanted to stay with Dina. And it wasn't until Dina told her, go with Esther, that she listened. So I have always said (coughs) that Manya survived because she listened and my mother survived because she didn't. (coughs) Two very different personalities. (coughs) Excuse me. Remember this picture because I'm going to come back to it. So here they arrived at Stefan's house. <coughs> and this picture is remarkable because it takes place over several days. <coughs> so here they arrive at his house. They tell him, we're Hersch's daughters, please help us. He embraces them, tells them not to worry, he'll take care of them. He puts them up in his attic where they're stringing tobacco leaves. And after a, couple of day, but after a couple of days, he calls them down and tells them that they have to leave. Everybody in Nishik, their home village, knows that they're with him. And if the Germans come, they'll kill the girls, they'll kill him, they'll burn down his farm. He can't keep them. So he sends them out into the rain along this path until they come to the woods and <coughs> they're drying their boots in the trees there. And there my mother realizes that they cannot survive as Hershe's daughters. And so she makes up these identities for them as these Polish Catholic girls from a town on the other side of the big river that she had heard her father talk about. So she made up these names, very Polish names, Josefina and Marysia Grochowiecka. They were from this town called Chizof. They had been separated from their family um, because the family's farm, the Germans had confiscated the family's farm and given it to these ethnic Germans, these so-called Volksdeutsch. And um, so they... Uh, were separated from their family, and they were looking for work. So they went from village to village with this story, but people wouldn't keep them for more than a day or two because they didn't have papers. People wanted to see papers, baptismal certificates. Um, And then finally... They came to a village where people didn't ask them for papers, and there they had been hiding in the woods, trying to figure out their next moves, and it was growing dark, and my mother said, we can't stay here in the, in the forest because if we're f- discovered, people will know we're Jewish. No one other than two, uh, two Jewish girls would be hiding in the woods. So she said, we have to just go to the next village <coughs> called Grabufka, and go straight to the sheriff's house and tell him our story. And Manya was terrified at the idea of going to the sheriff's house, but she said, if we're going to be taken for the we have to act like that. So they went to the sheriff's house. He told Manya, my aunt, that she could stay with, his work for his mother, and um, he said, my mother could work for this older farmer whose wife was uh, sick and bedridden, and and so he needed help, and that's what they did, and they stayed in this village uh, under these assumed identities for the next two years, and this here is uh, the the man that she lived with. She called him Jadik, which is the Polish word for grandfather. He was very fond of her. It was never clear, well, he he took her for who she said she was. He might have suspected who she really was, but it was never spoken between them. He was very, um, he was very cautious And uh, with her, I mean, and very mindful. And so on this day, these two German soldiers marched into this garden that my mother had planted. And so Jadik positioned himself there to watch and see what would happen. And um, they were talking to my mother. They were trying to engage her, but she refused to uh, do to engage with them because they were speaking to her in German as being a, a Jewish girl she understood German because it's very close to her first language Yiddish but she had to pretend that she couldn't understand them so she just kept her head down. Now the farmer kept bees and you can see in the back he had all these beehives and while this was happening with the soldiers, suddenly the bees came out of their hives and started swarming around the soldiers until the soldiers finally left. They couldn't, and they, my mother said in the caption, the soldiers were asking, why aren't they stinging you? But my mother always, uh, always regarded this day as the day that the bees saved her. Um she didn't regard it as a magical thing. She thought that, that there was something about maybe the soldiers were wearing some kind of cologne or some something in their scent. Bees don't like strangers. They knew, obviously, my mother and and Jadik. But it was remarkable um, when she told me about this. It was just remarkable because no one could say. No people could, her, could save her, but the bees could. The bees, so she, the, she always regarded this as the day the bees saved her. So this is now July 1944, when the Russians came through uh, on their way west. Um, and after this, they liberated the whole region and a couple of months after this, my mother uh, went back to Mnishik to see if, any, if anyone else had returned. But here they are greeting this uh, small platoon of soldiers, of Russian soldiers, boys, my mother said, coming through on their way. So my mother went back to, uh, my mother went back to Mnishik, to see if anyone had returned, no one had. And no one knew where they had been, what had become of them, where they had been taken. But one of her neighbors thought that perhaps they had been taken to this camp called, a concentration camp called Maidanik, which was not terribly far from where they lived. So my mother, who was then 17, went to Maidanik, And here she is at the bottom of the picture, in this yellow dress with her braids. I always thought she looked like Dorothy on the road to Oz. And um, Majdanek is actually a very, very large camp. It's spread out over a wide area. But my mother compressed in this picture all the main features. So you can see the crematorium with a chimney, these uh, gas chambers on the right. In the back is this field of giant cabbages that were growing on a bed of human ashes. And then in the front on the left is this uh, building that was filled with shoes. And actually there are tens of thousands of pairs of shoes there that uh, were left behind. And um, my mother started combing through the shoes to see if she could find, her mother's shoes, Uh, it's just incredibly poignant um, scene. So the Russians had liberated the camp and they gave my mother a tour of the camp and after she saw the whole place, she enlisted in the Polish army which was under Red Army Command and she went with them on their way to uh, Berlin Here she is, well, here they are along the road. And uh, it was after this, um, they went to Germany. My mother went back to Poland to get Manya, and then the two of them went back to Germany to a displaced persons camp, a DP camp, which is where my mother met my father, my aunt met her husband, they all got married lots and lots of people got married in the camp because most of the survivors were young people who wanted to put their lives back together again. So there were a lot of weddings in this camp. And in fact, there are a few pictures, my my parents' wedding picture, and some other wedding pictures, and all the brides are wearing the same dress, which they wore, when the photographer came to take pictures. It wasn't at the actual wedding. I always was so um, taken with this image of this one wedding dress that served all the weddings there. So my father, uh, who had an entirely different story, he had relatives in New York, so they, applied to emigrate to the United States. While they were waiting for the visa, my father, uh, well, my father went to Belgium to find work there, then sent for my mother who was already pregnant with me. And I was born in Belgium. And then uh, here we are arriving in New York, and that's me on my father's shoulder there. And we were met by my father's cousin Clara, who um, my mother recalls uh, when she was standing with us at the entrance to New York Harbor, she looked at me, I was sleeping, and she looked at me and she says, my mother put this in the caption, my dear child, this will be your America. (laughs) What a difference from today's immigration stories, by the way. Really, here, my parents were my parents and me. We were greeted, and my mother's memory was of this in fact, I asked her what was her feelings when she saw the Statue of Liberty coming into the harbor, and she said um, that her first thought was that she would never have to feel uh, uh, that she couldn't that she wouldn't She felt she would never have to hide her Jewish identity again, that she could be herself. So this is now in Brooklyn, which is where I grew up. And this is the backyard of the house where we were living at the time. And in that backyard, there was this old, overgrown, sour cherry tree. My mother was a fantastic cook really (laughs) world-class, and she was also Eastern European, so when she saw these sour cherries, she had to climb this tree and pick the cherries because she saw blintzes and compotes and pies, all kinds of things. So in the picture, this is me and Helene, my sister, and you can barely make her out there in the blue dress in the trees and she climbed up into the tree and she was passing buckets of cherries down to me and my sister at the foot of the tree. (coughs) And she included uh, behind the fence, the neighbor boy. My sister and I were the envy of all the kids in the neighborhood because our mother could climb trees. (laughs) And in the caption, my mother tells the story of how when she was a little girl, she used to sit with her grandmother and her grandmother would say, Esther, when you grow up, you're going to go to America. And in America, money grows on trees. <laughs> and she would say, "But Grandma, I'm really good at climbing trees. <laughs> so every time she would climb this tree, she would remember this conversation with her grandmother. So I just wanted to tell you a little bit about Art and Remembrance, the organization that my sister and I founded. Um, My mother, as she was making all these pieces, she would just give them to me because I lived nearby. And I would hang them on my walls and then eventually I ran out of wall space. But also it became clear that what she was creating really needed to be seen beyond the people who were coming to my house, that they really needed to be out in the world. So we worked, I worked for um, a few years in trying to get them out, and then um, my mother died in 1999, and a couple of years later, um, my sister and I started Art and Remembrance as as a way to share her legacy with the world. But we also knew beyond just, uh, beyond just sharing the images, that, we, that the education potential um, was enormous, that there were, this was a way to tell the story of one girl during the Holocaust and what her life was like and to share the experience of war in that way but it was also a way to connect with contemporary social justice issues, not just what happened during the Holocaust, but what unfortunately has continued in the world ever since. So I would urge you, encourage you, to take a look at our website. There are bookmarks uh, up at the counter, which, have, um, which you're welcome to help yourself to that have our uh, website on them, but it's just artinremembrance.org. And there you can see all of the images that my mother created. There were 36. I've just shared a smattering of them with you today. And, of course, the book has um, additional images, not 100% of them, but almost all of them. And uh, also there are descriptions of some of the programs that we have and work uh, done by other people as well the last slide that the last slide I want to show you remember I said remember this image <laughs> the picture on the left was one that appeared on the f- front page of the International New York Times um, Bruce and I were in Poland showing the film oh you can also see the film I would encourage you to do that on our website um we were in Poland at the time that the Syrian refugee crisis kind of uh, came to international attention. And when I saw this photograph, I was immediately reminded of this photograph, or of the picture that my mother did of this line of humanity fleeing, whether in one case fleeing to safety, in another, fleeing to their, likely to their deaths. But this is a story, as I said, this is a story that never, unfortunately, that never ends, is always with us, and that we always need to remember in order to do whatever we can to change this narrative. It's one that really needs to end. So I'm gonna stop there I'm happy to answer any questions, um, if any of you have any. I, have a I mean, the artwork is really outstanding. How old was your mother when she was doing all the needlework So did everybody hear the question? Well, the question is how old was my mother when she was doing this work? Which I think is a remarkable part of the story. My mother did the first two pictures when she was 50, and then she came back to them when she was about 60, And so she did most all of the pictures, all the rest of the pictures she did when she was in her 60s. And I was so impressed as she was doing this that she had found this wellspring of creativity. I mean, she was always a very incredibly handy person, but she had never done anything like this. And it came to her late in her life. And did she draw them first somehow or she just started? Stitching. She drew, when she started doing the collage, she would draw elements of the picture, like figures or houses, but she really didn't do like an entire sketch. She just transferred um, pieces and then she filled everything, all the background, or she pu- put it, actually laid it onto a background that she had already uh, uh, stitched down. So it was both um, planned out uh, with drawing and also free form. And she never used, I don't know if any of you stitch, but she never used an embroidery hoop or anything like that. She worked at the dining room table for the most part. Yes? Did, did she teach you how to stitch or embroider? Um, you know... People ask me whether I inherited this talent. No, the answer is no. I mean, I did learn how to embroider and there was a time in my life when I did do embroidery and knitting and crocheting, all those crafty things. But in answer to that question, I often say that my mother's talent was to create these pictures and mine was to bring them out into the world. So we were a a good team. Thank you. This is the share in terms of uh, us being here today because I actually, my first, my first day, was actually your mother's artwork with the backdrop It was at Avamp, I Really? Wow. Wow. That was your starter husband. <laughs> and he's like, she's here tomorrow night. And
0: we had all these
1: pictures and I'm like, oh, and we were dropping we out. Wow, I'm gonna tell so Rebecca Hofberger, who is the director of the museum, loves this. I mean, this is the exhibit that's there now is the third or fourth time that they've had the the collection. And um it's it's a very personal thing with her. So I I'm going to tell her that we met. That we met you here. <laughs> I have to say, just that our journey with my mother's work and our organization um, is filled with moments like that. These little, little pearls of serendipity, coincidence, a connection. It's really been a remarkable. Um, yes. Um, how did your mother feel when other people outside the family saw
0: her work? Uh, did she get a chance to, I mean, I know that you started the organization a couple years after her death, but uh, you know, was she embarrassed? Uh, did she enjoy it? Did she think of herself as an artist?
1: Um, she never really thought of herself as an artist um, because she thought of herself as a documentarian she was she was describing something that happened to her and her family um she but she really was i think very flattered and um and appreciative of the interest that other people showed in it, in her work i think she was a little surprised that other people found it as she She was not surprised, I guess she was gratified, that my sister and I appreciated it as much as we did. But um, the fact that strangers who didn't know her or anything about her family, that they would be moved by it, was also um, very meaningful to her. She, at the time that she got sick, She already had, we had sort of a public exhibit of her work at a synagogue in Washington, D.C. And she did what I'm doing now. She, she, uh, I I just ran the carousel. (laughs) Uh, But she did the slide talk and she spoke before an audience in the main sanctuary of a main synagogue. Um, She spoke before 300-plus people who were, there was absolute stillness. People were just mesmerized. She was a great storyteller, and, and she was this little, you know, five-foot-tall woman. And uh, she did a fantastic job, and then there was an exhibit of many of her pieces. People were so eager to, to see them. So it was wonderful that she had that opportunity, at least that opportunity, to uh, see how her work was received by many, many strangers. Yeah. I no. My. No no my aunt never did my aunt's memory well my mother's memory was extraordinary so it's not to uh, be critical of my aunt she just didn't have that extraordinary visual memory my mother was the older one she needed to be alert to what was going on in the environment and and she had an artistic sensibility so i but but my aunt, did, my aunt did what she needed to do. She was a hard worker, and she um, she was a good, uh, an essential companion to my mother. But it wasn't in her to do that. Could she climb trees? <laughs> I don't know. They, she could ride horses. I <laughs> I think that a lot of it had to do with her age, that she had just reached a time in her life when legacy uh, became meaningful to her and um, she wanted to pass on her memories because her memories were all that she had, all that there was in the world of her, of her family and she wanted to her, her children to know her family. She had always told us those stories, but she wanted to document. She wanted a record of it. She years earlier, she had started to write a, a kind of record of her story, but that wasn't her her media. She wasn't a writer. She wrote a lot, but she, it because she was a storyteller, but it, <laughs> This was her. This was her way of telling her story. And when she started this, then she worked on this until she couldn't work on on it anymore. And she wasn't finished. She would have done more pieces if she had had the time of her lifetime. What happened to Manya, yeah. Manya lives in Dallas. She's still living. She just turned ninety last year. Um, and her, she moved there from New York. She and my uncle moved there from New York to be near her kids who had moved there. So she's, she's doing fine. We saw her last summer.